Welcome, everyone. I'm Chris O'Connor. I'm principal investigator of the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and we're here with Heart of the Matter podcast. And I'm very excited to be with my colleagues today to talk about something really important, a meeting we recently had about statistical considerations in clinical trials. Now, you may think, wow, that's going to be a dense, boring topic. But each and every one of you wake up every morning and use predictive analytics to get your day started because you look at the weather and you look at the probability of rain and you're integrating a lot of information into how you may be moving around, transporting yourself, using a lot of analytics. We're going to talk about how we look at clinical research, clinical trials in cardiology And uh, before we get started, I'm going to ask my colleagues to uh, introduce themselves and tell a little bit about their background. We'll start with uh, Dr. Mona Fuza. Hi, everyone. I'm Mona Fuzad. I'm a pharmacist by training and associate professor of medicine at Duke University. We know that you've served as a drummer in a band, so you don't have to introduce that. But uh, let's have Dr. Janet Wittes. Hi, I'm Janet Wittes. I'm a statistician. What's new about me right now is that I've worked for 50 years in large organizations, at small organizations, and now I'm an organization of one, and I'm trying to decide how life goes on after one sort of retires. Janet, you never retire because I've seen you recently at a cardiorenal advisory panel meeting, and uh, uh, 50 years, you must have started a statistician at age five. No, uh, two. (laughs) Two, Okay. Eric Leifer. Hi, I'm Eric Leifer. I'm a uh, statistician in the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, where I've been for about 22 years. And uh, I see a wide variety of trials. I worked with Dr. O'Connor on heart failure trials early in my career and kept it going. It's been a great experience. I guess for something unique, I'm actually still playing ice hockey, but now the people seem to be about half my age. Wow. So you understand risk. And you understand hazards. <laughs> so this is terrific conversation. We talk about your survival curve on the ice. Bill Abraham? Yeah, Bill Abraham. I'm a heart failure cardiologist at The Ohio State University and a clinical trialist. Uh, today's topic is uh, very important to me and I think to uh, my patients. And uh, today I'm going to go trick-or-treating with the kids as the wise old owl from the old Tootsie Pop commercial, if you remember that. <laughs> Mitch? I'm Mitch Sotka. I'm a heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Nova Health System in Falls Church, Virginia. And I will be Batman, so will my son tonight, for trick-or-treating. <laughs> oh, my Lord. This is amazing. Mitch, let's start with you. We dedicated a large part of one of our think tanks to talking about hazard ratios and hazard ratio drift. For the audience, what is a hazard ratio and why are we so interested in hazard ratios and components of hazard ratios. Fascinating. So hazard ratios are mainly in use, and I'll defer to my statistical colleagues to truly answer this, but are mainly in use because of their statistical properties. They allow us to do lots of things uh, in terms of the analysis and in terms of how we can treat them. They remain to have some statistical presence, but I think people find them useful because they get a sense that it talks about overall relative sorts of risks to people when they get treated with some sort of therapeutic and how they're going to respond to that. It lets people take that information home. I think that when we start thinking about what they mean and need to communicate that information to patients, it gets a little more difficult. And so I'm not sure that a patient understands when I say that there is a hazard ratio of 0.9 for this treatment in a patient with heart failure, that they know what that means. That, wait, I'm 90% less likely to get a 
benefit or I'm 10% likely to do well over time or how much time, what does that mean if I take that for four years? What is the cost benefit? Am I 90% better? I mean, I think when you start delving into the details of your, how do you communicate these to patients, no one really knows what it means. Uh, and I think when you start talking about absolute benefits to patients over time or absolute base benefits over a specified period of time, like five or 10 years, that becomes then much more likely to be something that patients can understand. To take it just a little bit further, when you start looking at the difference between relative benefits and absolute benefits, the absolute benefits are always much smaller. So industry sponsors tend to like relative benefits because it makes their therapeutic look better because you can say you have a relative risk reduction of 20, sometimes 30 or even 40 or 50% for an outcome that you care about, such as dying or being hospitalized. But when you start looking at an absolute benefit, you start seeing things like a half a percent difference or a 1% difference over a year or two years in terms of an event, meaning you start seeing, well, one out of 100 patients maybe will live a bit longer with this. Or if you use what's called the restricted mean survival time, which is another way of analyzing trial data that can tell you, you know, for a patient who is treated with this medication for five years, a patient treated with this is likely to have eight months longer life than a patient not. And I think that is something that patients can better understand, but is not typically used because it shows a quote unquote smaller otherwise treatment effect than others are used to. We got to unwrap a lot of that. There's a lot in there, Janet. Let's go back to, I, I got to dummy this down for myself. Hazard ratio is the probability of an event with a treatment divided by the control and integrates time. But explain to me and the difference between that and odds ratio and risk ratio, and then we'll get to, we'll go around the table and talk about time. All right. I think it's reasonable, Mitch, that patients don't understand what a hazard ratio is. Because what it's trying to do is integrate over time the relative risk of an event. And that's a really hard concept. And actually, what you're trying to do is describe what happens to people over time, one treatment compared to another, and summarize all of that complicated information into one number. And so it's really hard to know what that one number means. I think what Mitch is describing in terms, in terms of restricted mean survival time, things that people can relate to, is much more interpretable. My own feeling is the best way to look at the data is to show survival curves and heart failure. That's what we're interested in, what happens over time, and to show the survival curve, the time to event in one treatment versus another, and describe it, what happens at one year, what happens at two years, what happens at three years, and not try to summarize it in terms of hazard ratio. I agree that hazard ratio has nice statistical properties, but that's not sufficient for patients understanding it, for physicians understanding it, or I dare say, even a statistician's understanding. That, that is a really puts the crux at, at this question, Bill. And you have a lot of patients. You've been in a lot of clinical trials. Tell us how you communicate the advantage of one therapy over another. Yeah, I think this is really the key, right? Clinicians want to understand this. And of course, we want to be able to communicate it as clearly as possible to our patients. So I think it's important to look at the totality of the data. Certainly a primary endpoint with a time to event analysis and looking at a hazard ratio provides some information. But there are always other elements of clinical trials 
that tell us about how one treatment fares against another, for example, looking at quality of life scores, uh, exercise ability, other patient-centered or patient-reported outcomes you know, are very important as well. So I think you have to have a fairly holistic discussion with your patients. Now, I do try to put this in the context when I think about hazard ratios, you know, what that means over some average period of follow-up, what's the likelihood that you'll do better with this new therapy. And in that regard, I usually do cite relative risks just to give them some impression of what they might expect. Uh, you know, it's not very precise. I think the limitations of that approach have already been explained by others, but it at least gives patients some feeling for whether or not they're more or less likely to be improved and in some relative sense by how much. But I think that discussion in isolation is limited and talking about how much better they might feel on average, how much better they may be able to exercise. Are they going to be able to climb that flight of stairs that they can't climb today? You know, for example, uh, are they going to be able to perform more of their usual activities of daily living? And again, that only comes, I think, from, you know, look at the totality of the data. No single number here tells the whole story. I think what you just said there, no single number tells the whole story. I like what you and Janice said is let's try to get the totality of all the information in there. And Eric, you've looked at a lot of data and we come in and we're proud. We tell you that we've got a therapy that reduces um, hard clinical outcomes, bad outcomes by 25%. We're proud of that. Mitch calculates the restrictive mean survival time and it turns out to be 60 days and we go, oh my gosh, with this big expensive therapy and we only get 60 days of additional survival. How does that work out? Can How can you have such a big effect size by hazard ratio, but then such limited survival? Time? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And as Mitch said, it, what it really comes down to is looking at the uh, relative reduction in the event rate versus an absolute reduction in the event rate. So if you start off with for instance, something that's very low, say mortality, if that rate in absolute terms is very low, even if you only have a 50% reduction, it's still going to be, in absolute terms, a small relative reduction. Nevertheless, I think the hazard ratio does give information about which treatment really does seem to be better. And it can remember, it is an average. So the 60 days that you're citing, I mean, certainly there'll be certain patients who would benefit much more than 60 days. And so sometimes we just really need to drill into getting into certain subgroups of patients to get a better idea about the absolute reductions of bad event rates. So I think that having a single number can be useful, but it needs to be supplemented by talking about absolute event rates, looking at maybe one year out or two years out and looking at differences there. And even if the differences aren't that impressive, at least it gives physicians and patients some information as to what might be a better path to go on, at least at the start of their treatment and then going forward. Terrific. And so, Dr. Fuzad, if you had a drug A improve survival by 50% versus drug B, but the mean restricted survival time was 30 days, and this drug cost $100,000 a year, do you think society should go forth with that? I'm an advocate for hope for patients and continued development in various therapeutic areas. So even a small advantage for me is important, but along the lines of what Bill was saying, I think 
As a pharmacist, one of the things that we often discuss with patients includes this kind of trade-off concept. So we have to be aware of how much benefit you may gain and what risks you might take to gain that benefit. And so I think Bill said, looking at that whole picture is really important, much more so than just the benefit alone. And again, the cost is something that isn't even in the equation when we talk about the risk and benefit ratios in numbers. So that's a very important point, as well as do I really need to take another medicine, which can throw off patients entirely. So there are a lot of other issues outside of these statistical concepts that we have to consider. But I do think even small benefits, it's not been that popular, um, some of the newer FDA approvals recently. But I, I think it's important for patients to have an option. And like Eric said, for some patients it works and for some patients it may not. But having that hope, especially in areas where there are very few options, is really important. Maybe what we're saying is that it would also help to know who gets the home run from benefit versus who gets the single. And when we look at this mean number, we need to delve in more. And maybe that's the way we can look at the totality of the information. One thing that happens in long trials of treatment A versus treatment B is those effect sizes begin to narrow, Janet, and we've talked about this concept called hazard ratio drift. What does that mean? Is that this number that we calculate blows in the wind and tumbles around and gets smaller because the trial's longer? It can get smaller or it can get larger. If you have a study that's a one-year study, and you calculate the hazard ratio, you'll get a number. If you have the same two treatments, treatment and a control, and you look at it for two years and calculate the hazard ratio, you may get a different number. And if you look at it the same for three years, you may still get a different number. And that's because the hazard ratio drifts. It changes over time. Why does it change over time? It in some cases, maybe this doesn't happen in heart failure, but in lipid-lowering trials, the farther apart the curves get, the better the hazard ratio is. And so the drift is in the direction of better and better, stronger and stronger evidence for benefit. In studies in which people drop off their therapy or the therapy stops working so well over time, then the curves come together in time, the hazard ratio gets lower, and that's a drift in the other direction. And that's why I think we're all saying that one number doesn't tell the story. You have to look at the patterns over time and interpret them the best you can. I do have to say something about what Chris said. Obviously, what one wants to know is which patients benefit and which patients don't. I think that's a very, that's very hard to glean from clinical trial data. We wish we could. It's always a mixture of all these things of who benefits and doesn't. It's never one or zero, it seems like. Mitch and Bill, I'm going to ask you as clinical trialists, how in the world do you know if your drift is going to be going out like this, as Janet says, or coming in like this? You have to have some forecasting vision of what's going on with your therapy, right, Mitch? So I think that this comes to the crucial aspect of trial design. And you need to know, in some level, what forces are pushing your 
hazard ratios in different directions, what forces are pushing your treatment effects and what you're likely to see in different directions. And when we talk about differences in hazard ratios over time, or we talk about this kind of change in the hazard ratio or the difference in the treatment effect that you see over time, one of my favorites is this issue of depletion of susceptibles. And to dumb it down or to say it more simply, this is that a patients who are sicker, more likely to have an event of interest, meaning like more likely to die or more likely to be hospitalized or more likely to meet some other endpoint are the ones who are going to have it probably earlier in the study. And also the ones who are more likely to then fall out of a time to first event analysis, such that as a trial is going on, those patients who are going to have an event tend to have it early in the control group if a intervention is not effective and tend to have it later in the treatment group if the intervention is effective. In a setting where an intervention is effective, those patients in the placebo group tend to have it earlier and then only the healthier patients tend to remain. As the trial goes on, your apparent hazard ratio, your apparent relative benefit of a therapeutic, it will shrink in every trial for which there is effect. Now, that is one force that is always pushing down the hazard ratio. Janet mentioned one that is pushing up a hazard ratio. So if you have a treatment that becomes more effective the longer you take it, then the hazard ratio is going to move in opposite directions. So when you're planning your trial in terms of how long it should be, in terms of how sick the patients are that you're going to enroll, this needs to go into that relatively complicated calculus of how to structure the trial, knowing that for an effective therapeutic, the hazard ratio will typically get smaller over time. Those are important concepts. But what we often get faced with in clinical trials is do we enroll more patients to get a lot more patients in and therefore the follow-up time might be shorter because the event rate is occurring or do, because a number of things that can happen, do we hold the sample size, the recruitment size, and we try to extend the follow-up to get the number of events? That could be hazardous, right? It could be. And there's a lot that goes into the equation, and that's why when one reads the literature, looks at these studies, it's important to look at all of the design aspects, right? Because sometimes we purposefully enrich an enrolled population for events. Uh, you know, we use things such as a prior history of heart failure hospitalization or an elevated BNP or NT per BNP level to enrich a group for events so that we manage the sample size to be smaller and manage the follow-up period perhaps to be a bit shorter when you enroll patients into clinical trials, then by virtue of sample size calculation and event accrual, you end up with larger sample sizes and more follow-up. So it's debatable which approach is better or more ideal. A lot of it depends on what you expect to show, how sick your patients are. Are you studying mainly class three and four patients versus class one and class two patients? and so on and so forth. So I don't think I have a right answer here, except to say that all of these considerations go into the design and then are subsequently important to interpreting the results, including this issue of hazard ratio. And Eric, you get the last word. We talked about the STITCH trial when we were in the think tank. And obviously, if we had kept the follow-up relatively short, just even two years, we would have missed the signal and stitch. So as Janet was saying, there's an example where follow-up and getting diversion of those hazard ratios and those survival curves to get a less drift collapse, so to speak, was a real advantage to the interpretation of that trial. So give us your final thoughts on hazard ratio drift and 
how to account for it. Well, Janet made a really excellent point. I think that what your hazard ratio is going to be is going to depend on whether your, most of your patients are followed for a short period of time, a medium period of time, and a longer period of time. I think hazard ratio drifts. I mean, the longer we follow patients, I think we will see the hazard ratio vary over time. And I think we just need to take that into account. It's funny, there's actually statistical software which will try to estimate the event rates over blocks of time. And yet one of my mentors at the National Institutes of Health just said, if you're going to do a sample size calculation, just think about what the average event rate is going to be during the follow-up. So if you think of it, if you take a step back and think about what the broader picture looks like, that might be a safer way to protect yourself against hazard ratio drift because you're going to say to yourself, okay, I can't really fully understand how things might drift might expand or decrease over time as the trial goes along. But if I just think in average and act conservatively and when I design my trials, that might be a way for me to, for us to detect superior treatments and take and have a little bit of robustness depending on how the drip might turn out, which we can never foresee in advance. Well, thank you, Eric, for bringing clarity. Thank you, Janet, and the whole team for bringing clarity to a topic that we continue to struggle with, I think, in our community, but uh, it really emphasizes why statistics is so important and statisticians to be working with clinicians as we think about the goal of improving the ecosystem of therapeutic development. So, fascinating discussion. I think if we had a longer follow-up time to this discussion, we'd probably even have a deeper discussion and we would probably drift this way and drift that way. But for now, the Heart of the Matter podcast will end today and we'll continue this conversation in the future. Thank you. Thank you.